0: Have any of you looked at old pictures of yourselves and just thought, I can't believe I used to wear that. I can't believe that was the fashion and I went along with it. When I was young, it was baggy jeans. That was kind of a cool thing. And when I first saw some of my mates wearing skinny jeans, I was just like, I am never going to wear those. But lo and behold, it wasn't very long until you know, I was wearing some skinny jeans. But now, skinny jeans are out and great big mustaches are in. I'm looking at you, Bernie, setting the trend. But it's amazing how much culture has an effect on us, doesn't it? We think, oh, we'll never do that. And then, you know, lo and behold, we, uh, we want to fit in with culture. And uh, I just want to recap on where we've gone before um, in Corinthians. And just to do a brief recap, so the Corinthian church were basically questioning what it means to be free in Christ. So obviously, you know, mustaches are fine. The top knot, that used to be one, but that's... That's died now, might come back. Um, And in the previous chapter, Paul was saying about how their freedom should be used for the sake of the gospel. In this chapter, he warns them that they need to use their freedom in Christ not as an excuse to indulge the flesh, namely eating food sacrificed to idols. Instead, they must discipline the flesh and learn from Israel's mistakes so that they might engage with culture without succumbing to it. So, I'm just going to read uh, the whole passage, and then we'll get into it. So, it's 1 Corinthians 10, chapters 1 to 22, and it should be on the screens. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them God was not pleased with, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. As some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you that is not uncommon to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one body... We who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are they not those, are not those who eat the sacrifice participants in the altar? What do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything, or that the idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You partake of the table of the Lord and you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Right. So let's get into the first five verses because Paul is making a really important point here. And what he's doing is he's showing that Old Testament experiences foreshadow New Testament realities. The main distinction is that Jesus has been revealed. But when you look at the Old Testament, you can still see the same themes as in the New Testament. We don't walk by the cloud, but we do walk by the Holy Spirit. And we're now baptized not into Moses, but into Jesus. We had baptisms um, last week. It was amazing being baptized into Jesus. And we we consume the spiritual food and drink of God's word and spirit. Jesus actually says that those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. And we can often disassociate ourselves with the Old Testament and think, oh, you know, well, it's Old Covenant, it's not as important. But Paul is drawing the comparison and it should be really sobering to us because in verse 5 he concludes that with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And as we'll see later on, Israel's time in the wilderness was largely summed up by a lack of faith and trust in God. This led them into behaving like the other nations, rather than being a light to them. And Though Jesus was hidden, you can still see what Israel's attitude would be towards him when he finally did come on the scene. So, for example, that bit about the rock being Christ... Remember that story when Moses is commanded by God to to, um, speak to the rock, to yield water, and instead he strikes it with his staff. And it's in uh, Numbers 20, if you want to read it at home. Um, This shows us an example of Israel's attitude towards Jesus. Jesus the rock. The rock who says, "'Ask, speak to me, and I will give you living water.'" The rock who we esteem stricken by God." The rock who was pierced for our transgressions and poured out blood and water. The spirit with, with which Moses struck the rock is the same spirit with, with which man crucified Christ. And it is the spirit of rebellion, a work of the flesh. And whether it's Old or New Testament, that is what we deal with. That is the issue that we both have, Old and New Covenant, we still deal with the flesh. And Galatians 5, 19 to 21 says, the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So in our passage today, Paul is wanting to address the Corinthians' work of the flesh in the form of idolatry particularly food sacrificed to idols. And you might be thinking, well, you know, food sacrificed to idols, it's not really something that we deal with. But the principles behind the Corinthians' idolatry are relevant to us. And Paul gives us some examples that can be applied to all kinds of idolatry. So you're not off the hook. Now, idolatry is the reverence of something higher or in place of God. And um, these examples in verses 7 to 11 show us that Israel's idolatry, as I said, was rooted in a lack of patience and trust in God. And that Old Testament failures of Israel are New Testament temptations. But where they failed in the wilderness, we can succeed through Jesus who overcame temptation. So, Let's look at the first one in verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, this is in reference to um, Exodus 32. Uh, I don't know if you know the story, but Israel built a golden calf and started worshiping worshiping, worshiping to it. And that word play is actually a more delicate way of saying sexual immorality. So essentially, they ended up in complete indulgence to the flesh, completely given over to every whim and desire. And it basically happened because Moses was up Mount Sinai longer than they expected while God was giving him the law. Their desire was actually, you know, a good desire. They wanted to worship something. But as time went on, impatience grew, and instead... ...of, um, you know, waiting, they looked to the surrounding nations... ...and they worshipped like them instead. And they became influenced by the culture around them. Now, the tragedy of this is that at that very moment... ...God was giving to Moses the law, the very thing that Israel could have used... ...to worship God as he demanded to be worshipped. Not to conform to this world but to be separated from it, to be set apart. You see, the bull was a symbol of the demon god Baal, and so the implication here in them building a calf is that their worship was more akin to that of the surrounding nations, and this resulted in fleshly revelry. Instead of reflecting Christ, the lamb, they worshipped a golden calf of this world. And the thing is, is that when we worship like the world, we start to worship the things of this world, taking God's good creation and corrupting it. In this case, a God's good design for sex. And in verse 8, it says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So this is another example of when they allowed the surrounding nations to influence their worship, and the same thing happened, gross sexual immorality. And um, there's a famous quote, I don't know if you've heard it from Einstein, that says, um, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. When Israel worshipped like the world, they only ever got the same results, works of the flesh. And um, I was looking at um, uh, Glastonbury. I don't know if you've seen some Glastonbury clips come up on YouTube and things. It's just amazing to look at that and compare that to, and it is worldly worship. You see it, and it, and it looks like a, world, a service. Basically, you've got, you know, this, I mean, if you want a picture of Egypt, you've got this great big pyramid, everyone with their hands lifted up, you know, not singing words in the spirit, not singing the words of truth, but words of this world to people of this world. And if you've ever been to a festival, I used to go to loads of festivals when I was younger, it has a strong and powerful effect on the flesh. There is absolute fleshly revelry when it comes to festivals. We actually went uh, as a family to Big Church Day Out um, a few weeks ago. And on paper, they looked exactly the same. People gathered singing, but instead of gathering to worship Mam and his words, people were praising God. It was through the people on the stage that God was being glorified and glorified. You know, they were Christians there, but there was none of that fleshly stuff. You didn't see that. It was was a comparison of, you know, the two forms of worship. So, let's look at the next one. Verse 9 says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Now, this example is taken from Numbers 21. And Israel had basically gotten impatient again in the wilderness. And they say to Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And you might be thinking, well, so what if they loathe the food? They were eating it every single day. Of course, they loathed it. But this wasn't just ordinary food. This was manna. And as Paul mentioned in verse 3, this is the spirit is spiritual food, and it's symbi- symbolic of the spiritual food of heaven. So Deuteronomy 8, 3 says and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might take you sorry that he might make you know that man does not live on bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the lord so manna represents the word of god because it is by the word that we receive anything and it is through the word that our souls are nourished That is what God was trying to teach Israel. Ultimately, Christ is the word of God. And interestingly, it's um, it's Christ who Paul is saying is put to the test in this incident. The idolatry of Israel is that they longed for the food of this world. They longed to be nourished by this world. And in in doing this, they demonstrated a rejection of the word of God Ultimately a rejection of Christ. So verse 7 and 8 references worship well, res- references them worship like the world, and here in verse 9, we see them looking to be nourished by this world. This is idolatry because remember, Jesus said, true worshippers worshiping God's bread and water, that being spirit and truth. Then as a result, God sent fiery serpents, to come um, and attack them and kill them. Now, essentially, what is happening here is a picture of sin because we know that sin is the uh, the ultimate sting, the ultimate cause of death. When you reject the word of God and choose to be nourished by the things of this world, you leave yourself open to the effects of sin. When we reject Christ, we are faced with sin and therefore death. And uh, we were actually driving here um, this morning, and my son was saying, oh, Dad, what's the most deadly animal in the world? And I was like, oh, well, it depends where you live. If you lived in Africa, you probably want to be afraid of lions. And if you're swimming in the sea, a lion's not going to get you, but maybe a shark would. And so we oh, just have a look. You know, Google's got the answer for everything. So we looked at um, the 15 deadliest animals. And number 15 was a shark with six people. And the top three, which I don't count, the top two I don't count, because it was like people, it's like, well, you know, we're above the animals, aren't we? And then um, mosquitoes, well, it's not mosquitoes that kill you, it's, you know, what they pass on. Number three was snakes with 100,000 deaths a year. And if you want a prophetic picture that, you know, the snake is still attacking man, the works of sin are still attacking man, then you've got the snake as the deadliest animal in the world. It's still, it's, God's still trying to, you know, wake people up. So, let's look at that last example that Paul gives, verse ten: "Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer." So, this is from Numbers chapter fourteen, and basically, God has taken Israel to the land that He promised to Abraham, and uh, Moses sends out the spies. He sends out twelve spies from the tribes, and to check it out, and they discover, believe it or not, God's promise was good. It's an exceedingly good land. But there were giants in there and huge cities that they would have to uh, defeat. And they basically end up refusing to go into the land. They reject the promise of God. Instead, they long to be back in Egypt, back under the care of Egypt. And they complain to Moses, saying, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones, are going to become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So what God does, if you know the story, he sends them back into the wilderness and all those who would not take the land, who rejected the promise, would die there. And to prove his faithfulness, he raises up the very children who they feared would become prey. And it's those people who take the land 38 years later. Okay, so those are the examples that Paul gives us. Those are the the mistakes that Israel made, and we can be tempted by all those things, can't we? We can be tempted to worship the things of this world. We can be tempted to seek the nourishment of this world, and we can be tempted to seek the world's security because our flesh loves this world, but God has separated us from it to make us more like his son and to bring others to know him. And the Great Commission is twofold, isn't it? We're to follow Jesus, and we're also to make disciples that follow Jesus. Now, this presents a bit of a problem. Because if I'm to be like Christ, then I need to be set apart from this world. But if I'm to make disciples, then I also need to engage with it. This is a very, very real dilemma for believers, Because God doesn't want us to be hermits in a commune up on a mountain. As much as we would like, as much as I would like to be saved and just be whisked up to to heaven, that'd be great. But God doesn't want that, and neither does he want us pining after the things of this world. God rescued Israel, but he didn't put a great big wall around them to stop anyone going out and anyone coming in, but rather he took them through and around the surrounding nations and refined them in the process. You see, God is trying to refine you. He's trying to find us, refine us. And he wants to cultivate in you the same patience and trust that he was trying to cultivate in Israel. And he doesn't do it by just magically downloading those things into you when you're born again, but rather allowing you to go through things that are going to draw it out and are going to develop it. And this tests our faith in God. And the goal is not to be influenced by the culture as Israel was, but to be strengthened in our faith and set apart from within it. This glorifies God because then we become soul and light to this world. Remember, Jesus said, It's no good hiding your light under a bucket. And in the previous chapter, Paul is saying that all things he became all things to all men so that he might save some. This was for the sake of the gospel. And in the same way, we need to engage with this world, not to indulge the flesh, but to partner with Jesus in rescuing people from it. So when it comes to um, churches or believers, uh, Unless you're doing great, you might, you know, go on one of either side. Either you'll completely separate yourself um, with the desire to be sanctified in Jesus, but you'll be ineffective in reaching the lost. The other end of the spectrum is that um, in wanting to engage with culture, in wanting to reach people, you've become too much like it, and therefore you've hindered that sanctification process. It's a really hard balance to try and walk that we can only do through the power of the Spirit. Um, the Corinthians were more in that latter category. They were being influenced by the culture. And Paul says to them in um, verse 12 and 13, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not come unto man. Or in other words, you are susceptible to the same sins that Israel were. And our freedom in Christ is not an excuse for idolatry, Because idolatry itself, as we saw in those examples, shows a love for this world and a lack of faith in God. So what is the answer then? How do we engage with culture without being influenced by it? Well, common temptations are overcome by uncommon faithfulness, God's faithfulness. There is no temptation that is too big for God to handle in your life. Verse 13 says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The Lord is faithful in our gospel mission and he will not allow us to be tempted more than our ability. It's a bit like um, a bodybuilder. If you lift weights Um, You need to break the muscle fibers and your body repairs it, and when your body repairs it, it adds a little bit of muscle each time. But to increase in strength and size, you need to increase the weight. The important thing when it comes to faith, God knows how much you can take. God knows how much you can handle. And you think about um, his plan for Israel. He was taking them from Egypt into a land where they had to defeat other nations, where they had to um, be amongst those nations and you know, um, occupy the land. He didn't do it straight away. There was a process to it. He knew how much they were able to handle it. It's the same in your life. He knows where to put you. He knows where to place you. And if we trust and have faith in him, we will not succumb to the desires of the flesh, to the culture around us. But some of us do need to be wise in who we involve ourselves with And the places that we go to and the places and things that we get involved involved with. When I was um, born again, I had this strong desire, as I'm sure some of you did, to reject the things of this world. And this is a necessary process for new believers. God will often take us through a season where we do need to come out of some stuff. And sometimes it's never to return. But other times, as he's grown you in faith and wisdom, you are able to go back without that same power and influence over you that the world once had. So music was a big one for me. I used to absolutely love worship. It was sort of my identity. And as I said, I used to go to loads of music festivals and stuff. When I got born again, it, within about a couple of weeks, I just lost interest with it. I just stopped listening. Um, but as I've walked more with the lord i've able i've I've got a a healthier relationship with music now i can listen to music without glorying in it without taking um, um, identity identity in it and idolizing it really there's some stuff that i still won't listen to it's just you know it's off the table now i cannot listen to that stuff it's not helpful it doesn't build up um but you know there's other places other things that i can listen to it doesn't have the same influence over me that it once did So God does want us to be in the world and he will not let you be tempted more than you can handle. He will provide the way of escape to stop you becoming of this world. And it can be a challenge not to conform. But God wants to develop faith in us to endure for the sake of the gospel. Now let me just say as well, God never tempts us, okay? God tests us He uses difficult situations to grow our faith, but he never tempts us. James 1 says it's our own sinfulness that is tempted. But in our temptation, we can look to Jesus who overcame temptation. And through him, we can also overcome temptation. So as I said, our freedom in Christ is not an excuse to indulge the flesh, but rather an opportunity to crucify it by the power of the Holy Spirit for the sake of the gospel. Okay, so let me recap. So, as we, we learn, Israel were being set apart by God as he refined them to be an example to the nations. Instead, they failed, rather desiring the things of this world. God has set us apart, and by trusting him, we can reach the nations without being conformed to this world. So, let's now just look at um, the verses about food sacrificed to idols, which is something that Corinthians, at that time, that was their cultural stronghold. That was something that they were falling into temptation with. And it's one of many kind of areas of temptation. And the issue, in this particular instance, is not the food or the idol itself, but what's behind it. Because Paul says in verse 19 to 20, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that the idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So this is more about participation. If you look in those verses, 16 to 21, he says partake or um, participate six times. So that is the emphasis. Food is food, drink is drink, but through the partaking of food sacrificed to idols, we show participation with the cup of demons. And this is unwise, because it leaves us vulnerable to spiritual darkness, lies, and deception. The idols themselves have no power, but it's through them that demons can work. So you think about... um, Judas, for example, he was a lover of money, and he used to steal from the the money bag. It was through that idol that Satan used him to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Um, That was the way in that Satan was able to use him through his idol. Verses 16 and 17 explains that Christians are to participate, not with demons, with Christ. And by taking in the bread and the wine... We participate together to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Israel had an old covenant version of this when they were eating the food sacrificed um, to God. And Jesus is obviously the fulfillment of that. So so for me, when I take communion, um, I'm obviously thinking of what Jesus did for me. But in consuming those elements, the bread and the wine, in consuming them, I have that, that picture of Christ in me, the hope of glory. So I'm looking at what Jesus did, and I'm looking at what he will do in me, um, through me, because I'm in Christ. Um, and so that's what, that's what it's like when we, take, um, when we take communion. We're sort of proclaiming what he did, proclaiming what he'll, what he'll do, and we're participating with the body of Christ in Christ. The cup of demons must be replaced by the cup of Christ. So our allegiance, with, our allegiance is with Christ and not this world. In Galatians 6, Paul talks about being crucified to this world, um, this world through the death of Jesus. And later on in, in the passage, which um, Rory's going to be taking us through next week, it says how all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And so the idea is that the food itself is part of God's creation, but in using it in sacrifice to idols is a corruption of God's good creation and exposes a wrong motive of the heart. And so in the context of the Corinthians, we can look at those examples that Paul gave us and think of why were they eating that food? What was the the heart issues behind it? And so maybe, like Israel, they were just looking to fit in with culture. Maybe they were looking at the culture around them and just thought, well, everyone's else doing it. Let's go and do that. But maybe, in the second example, we see Israel saying, oh, we love this worthless food. And maybe the Corinthians just didn't like the other food. Maybe there was something about that food that they liked. Maybe it had, I don't know, nice barbecue sauce or something. But seeking to be nourished by the cup of demons satisfies the flesh. We are um, to participate with Christ, who satisfies our souls. And maybe, like the third example, the Corinthians simply didn't trust God. Maybe the meat was cheaper, and they thought, well, you know, this is our only option. Um, we can't trust God to provide for anything else. And this, too, shows idolatry because it shows a lack of faith in God to provide, rather settling for the cup of demons um, um, and the security, sorry, of this world. All these reasons, we don't eat food sacrificed to idols, but the reasons that they did are all still struggles for us. Maybe like Israel, you've got impatient with God, and you just find it easier to worship like the world, worship the things of this world, fame, money, sex, status. There's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but do we want them more than we want God? Are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? As it says in verses twenty-one, an idol can be anything that we put ahead of God. Idling promotion, for example, you know it's a good thing to, to want to be promoted, but to idolize that thing can cause fleshly results in, um, you know, dishonoring your co-workers or something to get ahead. Idolizing relationship, relationship to created by God. Marriage is created by God. But in idolizing that thing, it can cause you to date someone who God wouldn't have have for you. And maybe it's led to fleshly results. Maybe you started sleeping together, which is supposed to be reserved for marriage. It's a corruption of God's good creation for marriage. These are fleshly results when we worship something above God. And it provokes him to jealousy. And how are you nourishing yourself? Are you being nourished by the things of this world? Who informs your world for you? Is it Netflix, the news, social media, or is it the truth? Are you being nourished by the truth? And can I encourage you to go after the word daily? This is our spiritual food. This is our spiritual nourishment. Did you know that when the Israelites were in in the wilderness, they had to collect the manna every single day, except for the Sabbath, and anything that was left over was kind of stinking and worm-ridden the next day. It was useless for the next day. This tells us that there is specific spiritual nourishment for you to gather every single day that is useful specifically for that day that the Lord wants to use to nourish your soul. It doesn't matter how much you can read. It's our heart behind it. Sometimes you might be able to just... You know, read one verse in faith. I know what it's like. You know, my wife is completely overrun with our kids. You know, If you can just get one verse in with a heart that you just want to be nourished by the Lord, he will nourish you with it. Go after him. Go seek him. If you can read an hour, great, and do it. We want to have hearts who are hungry for his word to be nourished in our souls. So go after it and do not loathe it in search of worldly sustenance. And trust that God is faithful. Sometimes we refuse to trust in him because we don't believe that there's anything better. We don't believe that there's anything, any other option for us and we fear the unknown. Even though God had shown himself over and over again of his faithfulness to Israel, they couldn't trust him and ultimately it led to two things. First, they rejected the promise of God and second, they started, to be, they started longing to be back in Egypt under the care of Egypt, under the care of this world, rather than of God. Do not provoke him to jealousy by seeking the security of this world. If you're not trusting in God, what are you trusting in? Let us trust in the power of Jesus to save. Let us go and tell others about him in the freedom that he's given us. So, hopefully you can see now why Paul was warning the Corinthians. Because when we partake um, in the worship of this world, we hinder our spiritual growth, we can end up rejecting his plans, or participating in the works of the flesh, or even the demonic. So, what do we do if we've fallen into idolatry? We have all fallen into idolatry, we have all gone after the things of this world, we have all looked for the nourishment of this world, and we have all looked for the security of this world. What do we do if we recognise that we are in that place? Well, the answers can all be found, again, in those examples. So let's just briefly go through them. Firstly, if you've fallen into idolatry, stop and repent, which is to turn around. Turn 180 degrees go the other way. Israel could not continue to worship false gods and indulging their sinful desires. They had to stop. And like I said, this was something they kept having to repent of. When you fall into sin, your first action, stop. That needs to be your first action, turn away. Next, we have the incident with the fiery serpents. And the part I missed out was how they got rid of them. And basically God tells Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Now, in John 3, 14 to 16, it says, As Moses was lifted up, sorry, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for, the sake, uh, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew, uh, who, knew so, who knew no sin, to be that fiery serpent set on a pole, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, after you've repented, after you've stopped, look upon him who was crucified for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus, turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. If you turn from sin, turn to Jesus, and you will be saved. There's no good turning from something and not turning to Jesus. That's a 90 degree, and you'll go and find something else. You need to turn 180 degrees to Jesus. And next, remember uh, Moses, at the start I was talking about Moses, Even though Moses rebelled, the rock still poured out abundant water. That is grace. Through Jesus' death, the rock, the Holy Spirit has been poured out and we need to drink deeply so that we might receive power over sin and temptation. Then, instead of rejecting God's good plans for you, be a Caleb and a Joshua. Walk into the promises of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, walk into the life he has for you. Remember, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted more than you can handle. And he will provide the way of escape. So let us all, with patience and trust, walk this narrow path, walk in the way of righteousness, not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but looking to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are in control, that you are the author and perfecter of our faith, I thank you, Father, that you provide a way of escape as we try to engage with the lost for the sake of the gospel. I just pray, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would not have fear over the things of this world, fear to get involved with the people of this world, that we will be salt and light to this world so that we can bring them to the one who saves, that we can bring them to Jesus. I just pray, Father, that you would make us salt and light in this world, not to hide our light under a bucket, to engage with culture for the sake of the gospel. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.